Hi guys, welcome back to The V Word. Vagina, vagina, vagina. This is Dr. Jen. And Dr. Erica. Today we're going to be talking about something that's been sort of a long time coming, uh, C-sections and everything you could possibly want to know about them, why people have them, uh, why people don't have them, risks, benefits, that kind of thing. And I think we decided to do more of an overview than delve into some of the changes that are happening with C-section rates and yeah. sort of... A- sort of interventions because of C-section rates um, and just give kind of more of an overview. And then we would love any questions about C-sections that you guys have. And then at the end of this um, episode, we're going to hear some stories from people who have had C-sections themselves and just some firsthand accounts of what their experiences were like. Okay. So first, you know, I like medical history. I was looking up C-section because why it's called a C-section. And I was, it's always like, people always think it's Caesar. Caesar. They always think it's Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. That's not right. It's not Caesar. Apparently it's, uh, he was named after an ancestor that had a C-section. Oh, really? Is that? So anyways, Uh I don't know, but his, you know, his name wasn't really Caesar. No, like right. It, that's almost like saying president. Like, yeah, exactly. He is the president. Exactly. He is the Caesar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, anyways, um, uh, whatever. Just a little bit of Italian knowledge. Just a little bit of Italian knowledge. From but I Erica think Pasciullo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Exactly. I think that um, it's there have been documented C sections for a really long time, but the name C section uh, unclear, but definitely has to do somewhat with Julius Caesar. But basically, there have been, like, there's documentation of C-sections happening since, like, the beginning of time almost, right? Like, yeah. This this article talks about them from 1000 AD. That that's, There's an account of a C-section in Iran in the book of Shanama, written around 1000 AD. I might probably be saying that wrong. Um, relating to the birth of Rostam. And then uh, there are some Irish myths. It's in the Jewish Talmud book. Um, the procedure is called a Yotzai Dauphin. Definitely pronouncing that wrong. I feel like back in the day, though, it was a lot of like the, the woman is like on her deathbed. Like she is yep. dying anyway. The baby is stuck. Just get the baby out. Exactly. And so almost um, the ancient Roman C-section was first performed for that indication, basically to save a yeah. baby when the mother had died. Which is interesting because like back then, how would you even know if the baby was still alive? You wouldn't, right? You'd be taking a chance. You're just taking a chance. Yeah, I which think. is crazy. That's crazy. anyway. And then okay, there's a pa- there's apparently morbid. a patron saint of C-section. Really? What yeah. is it? I don't know. This is oh, according. it's like Saint Cesarius, of course. Cesarius <laughs> of Africa, a of young course. deacon martyred at Teresina. I don't know. Anyways, okay. Um, well, all right. So, what about stats, though? I think when people talk about C-sections, a lot of times the the big question I get is like, what is your C-section rate? What is the hospital C-section rate? Like, how often is it happening? Um, And I think what's really interesting about this is that it's not like a static number. Definitely these numbers flux throughout the decades. Um, Yeah. Like, if you go back all the way in time, it was very low, obviously, when we had a lot more like home birth, midwifery. And important to know what number people are quoting you. So there is a specific number that is the number you should care about if it's your first baby. That which is the number of a singleton term pregnancy that is vertex or head down. So that is someone's C-section rate for pregnancies that otherwise have no reason why they shouldn't couldn't be delivered vaginally. Yeah, I think it's it's sounds like it's splitting hairs. But when hospitals collect those numbers, those are the numbers that we really care the most about. Is could this is this a C-section and someone who maybe didn't need the C-section versus like someone who'd already or, had a C-section and she's just getting, you know, the repeat C-section that necessarily 
although caveat with like VBAC, um, might not necessarily have been avoided in the same way. Right. So, and we'll get it. This is, this is complicated, but very important. And we'll get into this a bit. So if you've never had a baby before, what you want, what number you care about is the primary C-section rate for Mm -hmm. that doctor, for that hospital, for that practice, for term pregnancies that are one baby that are head down, because there are indications that people must have a primary C-section that either that applies to you or that doesn't apply to you. Like if the baby's breech. The baby's breech. Right now, that's an indication for a C-section. If the placenta is covering in front of the cervix, that's an indication for a C-section because it can be dangerous and cause heavy bleeding. Other Mm -hmm. reasons people have uh, ha- must have a primary C-section or, or are recommended to have a primary C-section or if they've had surgery on their uterus that has cut into their uterus. So um, it not necessarily a prior C-section. That's a little bit different, but to remove a fibroid or other mass within their uterus if they've had a trauma. Those are all reasons why people have to have C-sections even if they've never had a baby before. Um, that they would just schedule. We wouldn't labor. So you want really like the laboring C-section yeah. number. Right, right, right. Like people who tried and didn't yeah. get the vaginal delivery they were trying They were intending to right. have. Yeah. And, and what then, are those numbers? So those vary a lot by state. So I'm just going to read out some of them. But they're on, on average in the United States, about one in three babies mm-hmm. right. is born by a C-section for first pregnancies. Which is a lot higher than it used to be even in like the 80s and yep. 90s. We do see that number going up. Yep. So in the 80s and 90s, it used to be closer to 20 and even less um, in the 80s. Uh, and then in, in other countries, it's much lower as well. Right, so that right. is always a big question. Why is it so much higher in the U.S.? But California, where we are, has one of the lower C-section rates. Um, oh, actually, according to the CDC, these are the 2017 numbers. They probably, it takes a few years. Probably. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't have them yet. But ours is 31. And then uh, you have states where it is higher, like Kentucky, it's up to 35. Louisiana, it's wow. 30. 37.5. Hawaii, Hawaii is 25. Yep. Mississippi, it's 37.8. And then when we look at the lower ones, Hawaii um, is 25. New Mexico is 24. Um, Idaho, 23.7. Those are, and Alaska, 22.5. And we can talk about why the, the yeah. regional differences. Um, there's a lot of <clears throat> things people think, and we and we haven't really figured out definitively why they're happening. But what we do know is when there are interventions in different hospitals, the C-section rate decreases. And we can talk a little bit about those interventions, but they're going on throughout the country to basically try to decrease the rate of primary C-section. I think one thing when we're talking numbers that I always like to point out to people is that um, one of the reasons numbers in general going up, not just by state, is because we are seeing more people do assisted reproductive technology. So like people waiting longer in their careers to have children get pregnant, so IVF, um, IUI, any of those things, and granted, we'll talk risk factors, but those are those increase the risk of having twins, multiples, for example, and those you're more likely to have a C-section with. So but, that not in that, but that's not in that primary, that number, right, that I said, like singleton term uh, vertex right, 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 right. should not include twins. No, this is like overall rate. Yep. So I don't, yep. those numbers that you're quoting, are those singleton term or is that just overall? No, nope, that's the overall rate. Yeah. Okay. That's only so that would apply to, like, to yeah. that number. The other thing I want to um, say or post you to is what is the appropriate number, right? Because mm-hmm. we get so caught up on like lower the C-section rate, lower the C-section rate, right? Because it's, but at it's what major cost? surgery. Right. But what is the right number? Like is a 5% C-section rate the right number? Is it 10%? When you look at the WHO actually, um, the World Health Organization, they it always caps out whenever they redo these analyses around 20%. It's sort of, and what they're saying in that is that it's unrealistic to think that you're going to get a C-section yeah. rate 
less than 20% reliably a total C-section rate right. all over the world just because of these known yeah. risks for it. And when we look in California, we're doing so many interventions trying to decrease the C-section rate. And they basically the goals, the best hospitals are around 20 to 23%. Right. So that's sort right. of the goal. That's the goal yeah. at this point nationally, right. which is still about a qu- one in four babies, right? right? right. So very common. Um, other stats that are important to know, which we don't have by state because it varies so much by hospital, but if you're ha- if you've had a C-section before, is knowing the success rate of TOLAX or the allowability of TOLAX, which is a trial of labor after a C-section, mm-hmm. by your provider or by your hospital, and that that's a great rate to know. Like, what is the rate at which people attempt to have a trial of labor after a C-section in your practice or your hospital, and then what's the success rate? Okay. And obviously so, that's very individualized. But. This is an issue very near and dear to my heart because my first daughter was a C-section. The second one, you know this, Erica, was um, a VBAC, a successful vaginal birth after cesarean. What um, What would you say? You're, <laughs> we're going to pretend you are my doctor. Like, well, yeah. So well, I want a VBAC. What should I, like, yeah. I mean, like, do you recommend it? What should I do? What goes into that? Yeah. Well, it's. I think before we get into that, I just want to mention that nationally, anyone who has a C-section for their first delivery is has an 80 to 90% chance of having a C-section in their second delivery. And the reason for that is not because that's how unlikely your TOLAC is to be successful, mm-hmm. but because we don't offer it. Right. And so that it, it puts all the more pressure on that first delivery yes. to really yes. be a vaginal delivery if possible, because it's very hard to find a practice and a hospital that will sort of allow you to try to have a trial of labor after a C-section. And you know this from your own experience that it's really yeah. complicated. Why? So why wouldn't a hospital let someone? Yeah. So, well, first of all, C-sections are probably the most litigated or the most oh, yes. things that we get sued about the most in pregnancy mm-hmm. is not doing a C-section. It's very unusual for someone to be sued for doing a C-section. Right. So that just sets up this horrible dynamic in the medical system. Right. You didn't act fast enough. There's something yep. wrong with the baby. You should have done a C-section sooner. Right. And almost no one can say you shouldn't have done a C-section. Like it's really right. hard to say right. that, right? Yeah. In retrospect, you can always say like the reason we could, we just averted disaster. Yes. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. And even if it's somewhat disastrous, you're like, we averted worse disaster. Right. You know, right. it's sort of like justified no matter what, which is really, really challenging to this discussion. Yeah. For, and then with that, VBACs and, and TOLAX, this trial of labor after C-section, also are hu- super litigious. Um, and so many hospitals and many practices have decided they just don't want to deal right. with the potential litigation. And bec- and also, because they are somewhat riskier, and we'll talk about this, you have to have an anesthesiologist who can be there in-house, 24-7. 24-7, and you have to have an OBGYN who could perform a C-section available 24-7 in-house. So that means the practice and the hospital have to be set up. You so cannot that, leave the hospital. So that those people are in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. And not every, most practices are not set up right. so someone is in-house at all, all right. the time. Maybe the OBGYNs are in clinic and then they run over for a delivery. It right. just doesn't work that way. Right. And maybe it will someday as we move perhaps more to a hospitalist yeah, approach, um, which has all of its own downsides, right? Yeah. But maybe that will be... Maybe one of the upsides is it'll make feedbacks more available. To be clear, though, so just so that everyone has the right recommendations in their mind when we're saying all of this, um, the actual medical recommendations from the American College of OBGYNs is that you offer VBACs to people who are good candidates for them. And there's actual calculators that you plug people's stats into to figure out yes. their success rates. But these calculators are so problematic right? in so many ways. <clears throat> so 
it like any algorithm, it's based on the data that you the quality of the data that you put in. Right. And because right. the way we make decisions about C sections, the way we create the C section data is like racist is somewhat dependent upon what hospitals were in, what practices were in, what we're allowed to do. The calculator, I just did this recently for an article I'm writing. Um, When you put, you can put in both race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So if you put in a white 30 year old with a normal BMI Mm -hmm. uh, who, and sort of like no other risk factors, her rate risk of success or, or success mm-hmm. rate for a trial of labor after a C-section is 75%. So successful. Like, successful. Okay. If she didn't, you know, all sorts of things. Basically, if if the reason you had a C-section was because in the middle of labor, the baby's heartbeat do- yeah. dropped, yeah, yeah. but your cervix was dilating, right. there was no right. arrest problems. Baby didn't get stuck. Yep. Then 75% chance of having okay. a normal vaginal. What rate. happens if she's black? If she's black, 60%. 60.3. And Why? if she's Hispanic... 60.1, yes. which is wild. Oh God. Okay. So and now, hold and on. there's have... no data for black Hispanic women. So I have it, to go on this tangent now, which is because crazy. I am Latina. I am half Mexican. Oh. So when we did my VBAC calculator, my success rate was like 60%, something low. Mm. But to speak exactly to what you're saying here, I, I messed around. I was like, well, I'm also half white. Let's see what happens if I'm mm-hmm. white. And same thing happened. Or I mean, not same thing. My rate went up. Because yeah. I was white. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what does my half yeah. genes say about my hips? And you can't put in half Hispanic, no, half non-Hispanic. you can't, right? Those of us who are mixed race, mixed, mixed ethnicity, well, screw you. Well, <laughs> and, and there's then, just no data. Well, the other thing, too, is that the reason it went low was for the was because of the reason for my first C-section. So the reason that was documented for my first C-section was arrest of labor, meaning stopped mm. dilating or wasn't able to, maybe wasn't able to fit. But the person who made that decision and did the C-section, arguably, I still argue to this day, um, should not have assigned that label to it. It was, yeah. you know, sort of right. That, it's not sort of the right thing. Right? It's very arbitrary and depending on a lot of things. And so regardless of even though I'm an OBGYN and had this discussion with so many people when they tried to, you know, counsel me about VBEC, I kept saying, guys, guys, I know, but it wasn't a true arrest. It wasn't a true arrest. The baby didn't get stuck. Let me just try. Yeah. And even my own colleagues were so reticent to let me do this because they were so, because that fear of litigation, that fear of the 1% risk. Mm -hmm. um, We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. that, That something could really go wrong with the VBAC. Uh, is so powerful. Yeah. And that really, that calculator really matters because there are some practices where you have to be above 65% success for them to say it's okay for you to right. TOLAC, I which failed. feels like such crazy gatekeeping, yeah. right? It was so, I, I would have failed. And it was yeah. such a beautiful vaginal delivery. Yeah. But anyway. And you're so happy about it. I'm so happy. So I always anyway. t- counsel residents and, and I will throw this out there to all doctors and aspiring doctors that don't use the race. Don't use the race data. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's racist. It's, it's racist. It's racist data that was put in. Those are racist decisions that were made. Like, it's very hard to, you know, take that out. And so use the best possible, like, optimal success rate that you can, which for that calculator is for white women. So I think it's really reasonable. Just assume everyone's white. Just pretend for the calculator, ignore that you can put in black or Hispanic. And just put everyone white. Yep. Because the I love it. And I at least it. you know, like, what it could be, you know, for if all their other white. data. If we weren't racist, cool. And and I, right. in my practice, I really counsel people for the risks of TOLAC, which we'll talk in a moment, and, about in a moment. And I say, if you want to do it, do it. Like, I know yep. more and more people are going to do crazy extremes to try to, to have a trial of labor after a C-section. And I'd rather people do it with me in a safe place, you right. know? Totally. 
All right, let's do steps of a C-section. Erica, I'm your patient again. I'm in labor. Oh my gosh, I need a C-section. Quick, tell me everything I need to know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I typically don't go through all the steps of a C-section in labor, but I do talk about counseling. And the brief version of my counseling is that I always start with why would we do this? So what's the indication for this C-section? In the middle of labor, if it's really because the big reason for an urgency section is because the baby's heart rate has gone down yeah, um, or looks concerning in another way, which is a whole big other conversation. You're worried about the safety of the baby or worried about the safety of the mom. Maybe she's hemorrhaging. Right. But I think very important that your provider tells you why they recommend a C-section. And then talking about what a C-section would look like and what will, what will happen if you choose not to do a C-section, right. what the risks are if you choose not to do right. a C-section. I'm not going to get into those because those are really situation specific, but the risks of a C-section are really the same as a vaginal delivery, just a little bit more. Yeah. And so both, there's always bleeding in a vaginal delivery or a C-section. A C-section has a higher risk of having more heavy bleeding because instead of the cervix opening and closing itself, we're cutting into the uterus and we have to repair that. So there's a higher chance of blood loss, a higher chance of needing a blood transfusion. There's also a higher risk of infection, though there's that that risk exists with a vaginal delivery too. We think the risk of C-section the risk of infection is much higher if you have a C-section in labor and if yes. your membranes have been ruptured or if you have broken your water. And if you just had like an elective C-section yep. because you've had one before or yep. you just want one. And there are now new data that suggests perhaps we should be doing some extra uh-huh. prophylaxis yep. Yep. for women who have broken their water in labor and then have a C-section. We should be cleaning the vagina. We should potentially be adding an extra antibiotic mm-hmm. called azithromycin. Um, and we, you know, we're starting to finally separate out not all C-sections are the same. And Really, the women who are laboring who have C-sections have the most risks of these things happening. And then finally, any surgery, and actually in vaginal deliveries too, there's a risk that you could injure the surrounding structures when we think about uh, the bladder, the bowel, the tubes, the ovaries, the baby. All those things can be injured in a surgery, but also many of those things can be injured in a vaginal delivery as well. Not um, yet. Uh, in different say, ways. Like, not the inside stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Like the cervix for sure. Yeah. Right. So all of those things. And then obviously healing is really different. I talk about that more afterwards, but not usually in that counseling. And then so important, I just want to stress again to, for your provider to talk about what are the risks if we don't do this C-section? How worried about this baby? How worried about me are you? Right. Um, is it because you've been pushing for four hours? Is it okay? Am I worried about yeah. you being exhausted? Or am I really worried that your baby's not getting enough oxygen? Those are really different situations. Yeah. And I think one thing that's really important to point out too is that we, the way that we measure how babies are doing um, based on if you've ever had a baby before, is that fetal heart rate strip. We're looking at the baby's heart rate and not just the number, but how bouncy it is and all these other variable variables about it. The data as to why we use that is not that great, but it's the only thing we have. Um, the way it was studied was uh, in this way that you can't sort of undo now. It would be unethical to, to not use that, but it's also, we know, not the best measure. So like sometimes these babies' heart rate strips will look super crappy and then the babies come out like screaming and they're beautiful and their apgars are amazing. Other times they don't look that worrisome, the strips, and then they come out and the babies are floppy and it's just, it doesn't correlate that well. So you have but to therefore have a low threshold. Yeah. You have to have a low threshold because if you've been doing this long enough, you've seen You've seen plenty of babies who came out floppy and very, very worrisome that it's just not worth it. And that's a horrible place to practice from, that and litigation combined. But it is the safest thing to do. And at this situation, I always talk to people about you have a lot to lose 
um, or more to lose than you have to gain if we're in a situation where we're talking about heart recommending heart. a C-section or yeah. heart. Yeah, you know what I mean? But it's so, it is so tricky. And I think like all of labor, I feel like the role of an OBGYN and a care provider, as well as the woman in labor, the person in labor, is you have to hold so much uncertainty, right? So like there's much. so much you don't know. And it's, a C-section is a lot more certain in so many ways. And so there are people where that's appealing to them, that certainty. Right. And I think there are providers that that's appealing to uh-huh. them. And, you know, they're like, there are people in life that just hold uncertainty better or worse right. than right, other right. people. That's a good point. Um, and I think that ha- is, is a factor, right? And I've had patients who have been like, if you think there's a chance this baby is fine, I would like to avoid a right. C-section. Right. And if there are people that are like, if you think this baby is at all anything, yep. C-section right away. You know, yep. like yep. there's such a variety of right. that. And I think what we're trying to learn is how to better counsel people, how to better predict that, and then also how to better have that conversation. So we're taking into yeah. account what people are, what people's values are, because they're not always the same. Um, I want to talk briefly about a family-centered C-section. I do. Okay. I want to talk about that. Do you want to talk about the risks of TOLAC, though, real quick? Yeah. Okay, so speaking of risks, um, we had alluded before to the risk of TOLACs or trial of labor after C-section. Basically, the difference between TOLAC and VBAC just means TOLAC is when you're trying and VBAC is like after the fact you were successful. Um, the reason Or it was successful. It was successful, yeah. The reason you get so, um, so much pushback and why it's such a litigious thing is because there's this one percent risk of something very, very catastrophic happening called a uterine rupture, and that's where that area that was previously cut into in the prior C-section scar or the prior myomectomy scar, where they took a fibro or fibroid out, wherever your uterus was previously cut open, um, it's never going to be as strong as it once was. Just like any cut on your body it heals, like but a it's bone never. Break. Yeah, it's just never the same. And so there's a risk of during that stress of labor with all the contractions and um, especially if you've got an epidural, you can't feel necessarily if pain all of a sudden jumps from, you know, 10 to 1,000, that that it could rupture open. And what happens when that happens is that the blood supply to the baby gets compromised. So the baby is at risk of dying very quickly. And you're at risk of bleeding out, we say, or hemorrhaging into your abdomen very quickly. And things can just go downhill very, very fast. That's why we say that if you are going to TOLAC, if you are going to try for a VBAC, it has to be in a hospital because things can turn on a dime and you have to have access to the operating room with anesthesia and the OBGYN in-house. But then... um, but it's tricky because most of the risks of a TOLAC have to do with an unsuccessful TOLAC, really. It has to do with the C-section after the TOLAC, not the successful VBAC. So when we look right, at the, right, the right. risks versus benefits, it's actually so much safer to have a vaginal delivery yeah. after a C-section well, I would than just a like replay C-section. There is no risk of uterine rupture with a VBAC. There's a risk of uterine rupture with TOLAC. Yeah, we just don't know, right? And there are obviously... All well, maybe same... that's not true because I guess it could just... No, all these... Well, all these same risks that, that we talk about... About with the C-section are risky with a repeat C-section because that's what we really have to compare the risks of a repeat C-section versus the risk of a TOLAC that may end in a C-section or may end in a vaginal delivery. And the yeah. safest like of those three outcomes is the vaginal delivery one. We just can't guarantee that, right? Right, right, right. right. Um, and the repeat C-section is safer than the C-section in the middle of labor after a failed TOLAC. You know what we I mean? assume that's the thing though. You never know till you get inside. People can have like so much horrendous scar tissue in their bladders. Or just, right, you that's know, scar. That's I mean, true. you just never know. But, but this is what you're saying. It goes yeah. back to so much uncertainty and trying to make the right yeah. decision. Okay. I want to ask you really quickly. 
what is a family-centered C-section? So this is not a defined medical thing. This is more of a social movement, I think, because C-section rates rates are increasing and they're much more common. And there are more reasons why people have to have primary C-sections, like placenta abnormalities, breech babies, all these things, a history of uterine uh, surgery. People have tried to create, why, why, why do we have to make it feel like a surgery? It's a delivery and a surgery in one. Could we make it feel more like, could we emphasize the delivery part and do the surgery safely still? And so that brings up this concept of a family-centered C-section. There's many components and different hospitals and different practices try to accommodate different ones. So the first is that um, you're, it's, it is a delivery and you think of it as a delivery. So you're still trying to focus on who's you, who you want to be in the room, how getting the baby to the mother, the, the birthing person as soon as possible, um, keeping, keeping that sort of as much of the scene of delivery as possible. And then other aspects are sometimes we can drop a component of the drape. So typically in a C-section, we put a big blue sheet in between the patient's head and her abdomen so that she can't basically be part of the sterile surgery procedure, but we can. We now make drapes where you can drop one part of it, and there's still a clear drape in between. So, you, so if people want, they can see the baby being born, um, which is sometimes something people want. Sometimes that's really not what people want. In addition to like their uterus being pulled out of their, their abdomen and blood everywhere, yeah. but you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there shouldn't be blood everywhere. Hopefully, <laughs> but we've been trying to com- we've been trying to control that moment more and have people not miss out on that moment basically and then other aspects are having more people in the room so we typically because it's a surgical procedure it's really the only surgery that anyone who's not part of the surgical team is in the room for but we usually in a normal c-section have the partner in the room or like one support person Uh there's some there's some movement to have more than one support person in the room that gets a little bit tricky because it gets crowded in the operating room um and also you know if anyone passes out or has other problems the support people then that's problematic for the operating room staff who's supposed to be focused on the surgery yeah and the other thing too about that is that we i think it's it's a wonderful thing to, to consider all those things. I also think it's dangerous to totally ignore the fact that it is surgery. It is a surgery. You yeah. know, it's um, a big surgery. And imagine if you were um, used to operating all the time. When, when we operate as surgeons, people are usually asleep, not during C-sections, but, you know, they usually aren't watching every single thing you do. To be operating as a surgeon and having everyone sort of the family and maybe more than one support person just sort of staring down the drape at you and, then and not understanding what's and going not on understanding and and commenting and having um their phones out and you don't necessarily know like are they videotaping uh-huh. are they taking photos you can understand how that would make some people um, pretty nervous well and we're not used to it which is part of it so we don't have great rules and so yeah. it does make people nervous because yeah. there's not a known piece about it and then finally i just wanted to talk about this concept of vaginal seeding which have you oh heard of God. that I've written about it. If you want to, um, I wrote an article a couple years ago on Slate about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, Slate. The X-X. nonsense. Remember when there was double X? Yeah. yeah. We've talked about this before. I, know, I feel like, so anyway, to the nonsense. I'm going to say the nonsense of vaginal seeding. Do you want to do yeah. that? I would just say, I, no, I don't think there's any. I always tell people, and I've had a lot of questions about this recently because um, I have some close to me people who have had C-sections, is I don't think that it is dangerous. I just think it's 
it hasn't been shown to be helpful. But the idea is that there's something magical about the bacteria of the okay. vagina that when babies go through the birth canal, when they get that like all in their nose and mouth, they somehow have better protection against future diseases. I just want to just point out, so vaginal seating, I'm going to take a rag or a gauze or something, just rub it all over my vagina and then rub it all over my yeah. baby's face, just in case you didn't know. Without. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you want to do that to your baby, go for it. But don't ask your surgeon to do that in the OR. Don't have that operate the change the operating room procedure. Don't have that change anything about your surgery. Um, and wait until perhaps there's not, you know, there's no urgent things. But I would say it hasn't been shown to be dangerous, though it hasn't been shown to be safe either. Um, and it has not been shown to be beneficial. That's mm -hmm. my yeah. thing. It's magic. Yeah. Magic thinking um, until it's scientifically proven. That and, is, it, <laughs> and we're trying. People are trying to scientifically yeah, prove yeah. it and haven't been able to so far. Okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about the recovery after C-section? Yes. Because it's something you've experienced personally. I will say, so it's different. And I don't want to like... Um, Obviously, just, your experience is not the same as everyone's. Yeah. And I... Um, I, you'll hear it from these voices of people who've gone through this a little bit about this too, but I will just say having experienced both, there is a market difference. There's a big, big difference. And obviously, um, that's not the reason to, you know, to decline a C-section if your surgeon is saying that you absolutely need one or whatever. But with a C-section, your, you know, your skin, your um, muscles, they're being cut and respectively separated and stretched open. And so it takes some time for all of that stuff to heal and come back to normal and to even feel like you can use your ab muscles again. And I think we sort of underestimate how many things we use our abs mu ab muscles for. So for example, I have this like vivid memory of being in the car going home afterwards after the C-section. Every single speed bump, even though my husband was like trying to go two miles an hour, like so slowly over the speed bumps, I just felt like my stomach was being ripped open again. It was uh, awful because you use yourself to yeah. brace, you know? Yeah. Or laugh or sneeze or cough or go mm -hmm. upstairs or anything. It probably took, I would say, three weeks before my abdomen fell back to normal, like in terms of I can use my rectus muscles to yeah. do all these things without feeling the impact of it versus a vaginal delivery. Um, and granted, this is like your, my second delivery, too. So like that's probably confounded by that also. But I was like up walking around later that day yeah. when the epidural wore off. And I mean, you know, your vagina is sore as hell. It feels like you've got like, I don't know, a big like whaled beach or beached whale of a vagina like hanging out. It's yeah. all like, sorry guys, if you haven't gone through this, it's, that's real. It's yeah. real. It's very swollen, but, but your abdomen's fine and you can still walk around and, yeah. you know. I was trying to think of this because I've had also two deliveries, but both vaginal deliveries and the first delivery, I felt like I couldn't comfortably sit for probably like two weeks. Like yeah. my vagina was so sore and that was yeah. just not the case with the second one. No, I was yeah, like yeah. up and walking around. So obviously it matters if you labored. It matters. I know people who have had primary C-sections sometimes heal faster because yeah. they don't have any of that laboring um, component. But same thing. You have to have your muscles heal versus yeah, your vagina yeah, healing. Yeah. And the hardest is definitely the people that have to do both, right? We have right. some patients who right. labored, pushed, have to have you know, vaginal recovery and also abdominal recovery. And that you, you're, those are the warriors. Yeah. Oh. So intense. Okay. I think that's enough of us. I want to get to the stories because I know that everyone's got pretty interesting perspectives on yeah. what it was like for them. So yeah. stay tuned. And send us your C-section questions or thoughts. This is, you know, a developing issue that I think we're talking more and more about, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Great. I had a C-section because my placenta was in the wrong spot. It basically was blocking 
it was like over my cervix and basically blocking the um, birth canal. So you're not able to have a vaginal delivery when your placenta is sort of the, is blocking the way for the baby to come out. And then what was that process like? Like, were you upset? Were you in shock? How did you feel when you found out that news? Um, I was definitely surprised. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't expecting to have it. And um, in my earlier ultrasounds, the doctors were saying they thought everything looked fine. And then this was something that sort of came up um, much later. And so at around 30 weeks of pregnancy, they sort of figured out how much it was covering my cervix and how extensive it was. And so, um, so it was sort of that part was really surprising. I kind of in the back of my mind already had an idea that we would probably need to have a C-section because we knew the placenta was really low and down there. But my doctor had said, you know, in many cases, this will get pulled away. And so we may not need to do a C-section. So we'll just repeat your ultrasound later. And then when they repeat the ultrasound, they realized it was actually much more extensive than they previously thought. And then what was it like actually going through the C-section the first time? It was actually a fairly terrible experience for me because the um, the spinal wore off. And so the first part, so yeah, it was, so it was really painful. And the, the, the first part of it when you're kind of in, you're like in the operating room and there's all these people around you and the lights, but you know, I was pretty comfortable at the beginning and I was just really excited, you know, to meet my baby girl. I just, I was like, so excited to be there with my husband and like, we were going to meet the baby and we've been, so, we've been so focused on her and we wanted her so badly. And, um, and then, um, as soon as she came out, they had my husband come over and look at the baby. And so he got to see the baby first and then they basically barely showed me her. And then I started having some bleeding problems. Um, and so they made my husband and the baby basically leave the, um, operating room at that point and then so I sort of knew things weren't going well um and then I was basically there by myself with the anesthesiologist who was sort of panicking because of the amount of bleeding I was having and then my spinal oh. went off and I was trying to tell them that my spinal wasn't working and that I was really uncomfortable but they were so concerned about the bleeding that um I was basically given a blanket to chew on to like bite like a no, little bit wait really right. really yeah <gasps> They said bite on this. Yes. It was, it was kind of like, I felt like I was back in like a Western with like John Wayne. And, oh my God. You know, they were going to give me like a slug of whiskey and a stick or something. Um, so that was just fine. It just sort of became very surreal at that point. I was like, I don't, I don't think this is very normal. was kind of how I was feeling. No. Oh my. And then, you know, we can, we can laugh about it now. At the, at the time we were, at the time, I was thinking, oh, my God, please tell me this isn't what other people are going through. It was, I mean, it, it does make for a good story now to be told to, you know, bite a blanket like I was, again, back in John Wayne time. But, yeah, at the time, it was, it was, you're, just, you're just like, wow, this, is, this cannot really be my birth experience or whatever. It was so painful. It was so much more painful than I thought it was going to be. I had a lot of bleeding problems with the, with the delivery, and so they put this balloon in my uterus to... Um, kind of hold pressure so that I wouldn't bleed. Um, but again, because my spinal wore off, I didn't even have like that sort of gradual wearing off of pain medication. It was like it was just gone. But because I was having bleeding, they came around and kept massaging my uterus to make sure that it was, that it was firm and, and, it, and it wasn't bleeding anymore. And so every time they pushed on it, they were pushing on my incision 
this, you know, huge incision across my abdomen, and then there was this balloon in there as well, and it was really painful. When you, so the second time you got pregnant, was it like, okay, you had a C-section before, you automatically needed another one, or what was the decision like to have another C-section? You know, my doctor, she was awesome. She basically just left it up to me. She was like, we can, you know, let's just see how the pregnancy progresses, and if there's no indication for you to have a C-section, we can definitely talk about whether or not you want to do a C-section or a vaginal delivery. So she was open to me having, uh, trying a vaginal delivery if it was, if it was going to be possible. But the other thing was with my first baby, she was breached, but she was also bottom down, which uh, was yes. her other, which was another indication that we'd already had that issue with the placenta. So this time, um, the second baby was also, she had, um, I think they called it like an unstable rise. So she would go from breech, so bottom down to like sideways. Um, and so she never um, turned around, so she never had her head down. So, so because she was breech, I didn't want to do a, a breech delivery, a breech, a breech vaginal delivery. Um, I thought that seemed far more complicated, so we just decided to go with a, a scheduled C-section as well. When you hear people talking about C-sections and, like, specifically in the media, how they compare it to vaginal deliveries, what's your impression of just, like, you know, is there stigma associated with one or the other? Like, is that warranted? What's that all about? And how do, how do you feel as someone who's gone through a C-section when you hear those stories? There's definitely a stigma. Um, you know, there's sort of this idea of the way we're supposed to have babies in America or basically in the world. And there's all this talk about, you know, people have been having babies for thousands of years and you know, there's a lot of, uh, of thought that, you know, doctors are just doing C-sections for convenience sake or that you do a C-section because you're basically like a wimp or you're not strong enough or you don't want to have this like powerful experience of birthing your child. Um, and so sometimes it is really, it is, sort of hurtful to kind of feel like you're being judged this way considering the fact that I, I didn't have a choice and had I had my baby the way people have had babies for the last, you know, thousands of years, I would have I would have died. So, you know, there are times you you're just I'm so grateful for modern medicine and it, I grew up in the Midwest and I have a very practical family and background. So for me, I didn't really beat myself up about it. It was just sort of like, well, this is what we have to do because if we want to have a healthy, you know, healthy mom and a healthy baby and I want to be alive at the end of this to raise my child, then this is what we have to do. Um, So for with my first child... Um, I actually went into it thinking I would have a vaginal delivery. Um, I did have some complications early in pregnancy, and I think it probably affected the way I delivered. So my first delivery, I ended up with an emergency C-section, so it wasn't planned. (laughs) So um, I had gone into active labor, and I had just gotten my epidural, and then all of a sudden, uh, the baby's heartbeat uh, went down it went really low and it didn't come back up um so basically whenever that happens everybody rushes into the room and i knew that was going to happen um and one of my colleagues um who was training with me at the time was there on call to take care of me and she actually flipped me over to hands and knees which usually kind of resuscitates the baby but the baby's heartbeat still stayed down um and so that was the reason for the emergency c-section so there are a lot of people in there nurses extra nurses anesthesia um ob doctors 
Um, and then because the heartbeat didn't go back up um, with their usual kind of efforts to try to get it back up, they basically rolled me out on the bed um, to the emergency section. From my perspective, so I was on hands and knees. Someone had flipped me to hands and knees. I, I really actually, I just got an epidural, so I couldn't really move myself. And someone actually had to put, I mean, I don't weigh that much. So I think someone flipped me over my hands and knees. And I was on, I had my patient dressing gown on. And I remember my first thought, um, selfishly, probably wasn't about the baby, but it was the fact that, you know, my bare bottom was sticking straight up in the air and all these people were seeing my naked bottom. Um, and as they were like running down the hallway, I was sitting on the bed. I feel kind of the air rushing kind of between my legs and up against my chest. And I knew my butt was sticking up in the air for all of like these nurses that I work with and doctors and colleagues that I work with to see. And I remember turning around and asking the charge nurse at the time, I was like, can you, can you please just, cover my butt <laughs> because I was more worried about them seeing my butt than the baby. I mean, and that's just because I trusted that they would take care of me. Oh, okay. well, <laughs> yeah. there's an emergency, but can you please just cover my butt? <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so, yeah, that was interesting. I don't know. I just, I think deep down I, I trusted the people who were taking care of me and I knew they they would make I trusted in their judgment, and deep down, I felt actually very reassured that these were the people taking care of me. So, do you ever look back on the situation and, and wish it had gone differently, or or no, not at all? No, because um, you know, I knew the baby's heart rate was down in the 60s, which is really low, and it didn't come back up. And I knew they had to do what they had to do in order to, um, you know take care of my baby um and that was you know don't have control over nature um and that's what just had to happen to get you know get lucas out to get my baby out um and yeah no i mean it went the way it had to go um and i'm super happy with my healthy baby and super happy with the people who took care of me and got what needed to be done done and then what about the second delivery? Yeah, so my second delivery was actually a scheduled C-section. Um, it was a planned C-section because I knew that this, you know, I wasn't going to have any more kids. Um, I also had some complications during pregnancy. Um, I had this pubic, pretty severe pubic synthesis separation. I just knew that, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't need to experience <laughs> a vaginal delivery and a possibly further separation of my pubic synthesis. And so that was actually um, planned and pretty calm, except for, of course, I went into spontaneous labor the day before my scheduled C-section. <laughs> um, and I remember because I was actually at Michael's, you know, pushing a cart, getting crafts for my kids just to keep them off, you know, for my kids to keep them occupied while I was in the hospital, you know, the next day. And I actually got a phone call from the surgeon who was supposed to do my scheduled C-section to do the pre-op uh, evaluation on the phone. And I remember her, I was a little bit breathless. I was pushing the cart and feeling some contractions. And she stopped and she said, are you having contractions? And I said, yeah, but that's no big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing a cart right now in the middle of Michael's, so that's probably what it is. 
of course, after I hung up the phone, driving back home with my kid in the car, and I was like, hmm, these contractions aren't going away. I drank some water and tried to relax a little bit, and then the contractions got worse. And I was like, ah, dang it. (laughs) I'm in in labor. Um, And I'm not going to make my scheduled C-section. I have to go now. (laughs) So I ended up with a C-section, but definitely not as crazy as the first one was. Yeah, I was going to say, what is it like comparing the emergency C-section to like the totally scheduled, well, kind of scheduled planned C-section? Yeah, so the emergency C-section, um, everything happens really fast. And I actually, I don't know if I have really good memories, clear memories of it because I had just been given medications for contractions and for the epidural and I was a little loopy because of that or because the things happened so fast I could only focus on one detail at a time mm-hmm. so um, I feel like some of it when I look back on it it's a little bit of a hazy blur except for these feelings that I had like oh I'm kind of worried but oh no I'm kind of worried about my butt's up in the air but no my my so I have very strong feelings but not actually when I think about a good memories of the details of what happened um, but, but the scheduled C-section, I remember everything from totally start to finish. I remember going to labor delivery, getting checked and saying like, oh yeah, you're, you're in labor and now your bag of water broke. And so, yes, let's just do this section now. Uh-huh. And I remember, I remember details like getting up on the operating room bed and lying down. I remember thanking the anesthesiologist because after she put those final um, anesthesia and it was the first time in like two months where I didn't have pelvic pain and I was like oh thank you you're like my favorite person right now because <laughs> I felt so much better <laughs> um, and yeah I remember having conversations with you know the people who are doing my c-section and with the nurses and I remember everything in very clear detail because everything was calm and I probably didn't have all that adrenaline running through me like I did the first time around If you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by The V Word team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening.